Hey, Outliers. Welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy, a show about the misfits, rebels, and idealists shaping our world and the influences and lessons that propelled them to the top of their game. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, we sit down with David McDonough of CommonStock, who's building the data and communication layer that can sit on top of any investment account. Members can hook up everything from their crypto positions held at Coinbase to their stock and option positions at Robinhood or Interactive Brokers, alongside things like their retirement account to get a complete picture of their assets. And how that unlocks anyone to be able to share the investments they're making as transparently as they'd like while following the trades of others and learning from the smartest minds on the platform. I think what CommonStop is building is revolutionary because as fintech platforms have exploded, we all now need a way to see everything that we own in one place. And why shouldn't that be somewhere we can follow great investors that we trust and see what they're investing in as well? To learn more about CommonStock, visit commonstock.com, where you can also join for free. You can find our show notes with our favorite quotes, links, and clips from this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 44. For more from Outlier Academy, please follow us on Twitter and subscribe to our new YouTube channel at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. Every week, we share a few of our favorite clips from the latest episode. Subscribe, and we'll notify you when new episodes drop each week. And now, let's jump in with David McDonald. David, thank you so much for coming on Outlier Academy. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. And as I've been thinking about it, thinking about what we've discussed, it's just become more and more interesting. So as a long way to way of saying, I'm incredibly excited to talk today. So thanks again for making time. And I thought maybe the best place to start, we don't need to spend a ton of time here, would just be for you to share just a quick sketch of your background, kind of giving people a little bit of a snapshot of your journey leading up to founding CommonStock. Yeah, of course. And it's a, I guess, a relatively circuitous journey. I grew up in D.C. on Capitol Hill. My parents were government and politics and graduated from college in 2008 into the financial crisis. I was planning on going to medical school and I was saving money for med school when the global economy collapsed. All my friends went to Lehman and Bear Stearns. And as I was saving money, I started this miniature investment club with my friends, having never been interested in markets or economics or finance. And I think primarily because of dumb luck, I got in at the bottom. I bought Citibank for a dollar. And it's similar to a lot of this new generation that's investing now who started during the pandemic trough. I got started when stocks were cheap and they went up and I realized, wow, this is actually more so than the making money. It was the learning about how markets worked, reading quarterly reports. My friends and I would meet every morning and I was like our quote unquote tech analyst, which sounds super silly. And we would just talk about trying to understand businesses, kind of trying to predict the future and the performance of the underlying stocks that we bought were our scoreboard. I fell in love with economics, with finance, with business, and scrapped medical school, went to work at a VC fund, got an unpaid internship there, did tech investing and loved it, taught myself to code, moved to Google. And then in 2015, when Robinhood rolled out, I realized this was probably going to take capital markets mainstream. And I looked at my own journey, learning about business and finance and realized that I learned so much because I was interested in it with my friends. And also I wanted a way to amplify the knowledge of people who actually knew what they were talking about. And so that uh, I started building common stock in 2000, I want to say 2017 is when I left Google to build this full time. And it's been remarkable to watch retail this transformation, this Cambrian explosion since as it goes mainstream. And it's, I think, uh, 
an exciting place to be, um, certainly, but I think still just the beginning. So hopefully that gives some context. I think that's a fantastic overview. And the one thing I wanted to ask about there was it's fascinating that idea of having an investment club that you would get together and chat about. I feel like today, I don't know, Twitter feels like an investment club a lot of times, depending on who you follow. Was there anything that you took away from that experience or still lingers with you, sits with you about that time of kind of investing together, talking about that stuff together? It's interesting. It's something that is either obvious or not obvious to most people. But for me, it was psychological. It was I... In college, a lot of my friends, I went to school in Connecticut, a lot of my friends were hyper-focused on going to Wall Street. And to me, finance was very academic and boring, and people just wanted to make money. And everyone says you need to learn personal finance and learn business. But it wasn't until I started talking to my friends and bantering about it in just everyday language where I realized, oh, this is actually really interesting. Economics is actually cool. And it's unbelievably interesting to learn about how we decide on inflation, like the market baskets of things, micro versus macroeconomics. And it really just taught me about incentives. And my biggest takeaway was you can try to teach people get by giving them a textbook how to learn the fundamentals of investing, but learning by doing is 10 to 100 times more powerful. And just by getting a little bit of skin in the game and talking about it with my friends, I learned so much more viscerally and so much more powerfully. And that's been my number one takeaway from that, those early investment clubs. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it reminds me of a quote. I'm going to butcher it. Maybe I can link it in the show notes, but it's kind of from Aboriginal culture and just this idea that knowledge isn't real unless it's in your bones, that you really do have to like experience it. And that's always really resonated for me. So it's interesting to hear that part of your journey. So now I think it'd be great to shift and just flesh out a little bit about what common stock is. Obviously, I've spent a bunch of time researching it, and we're going to dive into a bunch of interesting vectors because I think there's a lot of kind of pieces of it to explore. But just to start out, do you mind sharing just kind of mission elevator pitch and a couple high-level numbers to give people a sense for where you're at and what you're building? Yeah, of course. So the mission is to improve the world's financial health by making market knowledge easier to access and easier to share. And something that I learned, my parents didn't really teach me as much, and I certainly didn't learn in college was by getting skin in the game and by amplifying people who knew and amplifying trusted information, I was able to learn the life skills. I kind of learned about capitalism. This is going to sound really ridiculous to a lot of people, but it wasn't, and Warren Buffett talks about this too, it wasn't until I bought those first few shares of Citibank that I realized, oh, there's a whole new class of wealth of you can make money while you sleep. And so the mission of common stock, because I'm just a regular person, is to try to increase the knowledge of those concepts. And you talked about Twitter and Reddit as these de facto investment clubs now, where I think there's room for a lot of improvement because there's so much noise, there's so much misinformation. I wanted to build something like those, but where it's signal over noise and you can actually trust the source of knowledge and you can link your brokerage. And so common stock is this communication layer, this social network that sits on top of every brokerage. We are not a brokerage. We're not a custodian. We let you link your existing brokerage, whether it's Robinhood or E-Trade or Fidelity or TD Ameritrade. And we then let you share your portfolio by percentage only, share in real time when you buy or sell a stock or an option or a crypto. We plug into Coinbase. You can write a very quick post on why you bought or sold something and tell your friends. 
you can write a more long form detailed analysis, due diligence on Apple's earnings report. You can chat with your friends. And it's basically, I wanted to apply this meta layer of brokerage data to a social network to amplify the knowledge of the people who actually know what they're talking about. And so that's where it is right now. And that's, I think, where we're heading is continuing to build out this social network that sits on top of every stock and crypto brokerage or exchange. And I know, I mean, in terms of scale, you guys have a staggering amount of assets linked to the platform. Can you share any kind of high-level numbers? Feel free to anonymize them slightly (laughs) of that scale. And I'd also be curious, just number of accounts connected on average kind of per user. Yeah, no, and one of the interesting things that I've learned is just how money scales. And we are still in the build mode and we have really not done any intentional growth or go to market. And it's happened all organically through sort of network driven and viral growth. We have now have had billions of dollars connected to the platform across all of these different brokerages. And that has been staggering for me to see, right? There are people with tens of millions of dollars in their Robinhood account. There's this narrative that is a common misconception that retail is all very young, poor kids in their parents' basement, but that's just not what we're seeing. We're seeing portfolio sizes with a median of 40K and an average of upwards of 400,000 based on like real money accounts. And our average number of accounts connected per person is 1.5. So generally what we will see is people will link their Robinhood account, which is a more active account, which they actively self-direct. And then they might link a more passive account for long-term buy and hold. And then they might also link their Coinbase account for the crypto aspect. And so, yeah, it's really interesting to see how people handle different types of brokerages, different asset classes. The options trading on one might be easier than you also might link your Vanguard for your 401k to manage some of that. So we're seeing very engaged investors who are aware of how they manage different portfolios and manage different levels of risk. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I think it's really interesting to kind of dive a little bit deeper into what it means to build a brokerage and custodian agnostic, you know, communication and data layer, as you, as you call it, uh, which is super interesting in, in what that unlocks. You know, it makes me think a little bit about Mint and my experience using Mint, which was helpful for seeing, um, you know, kind of all assets in one place. But I found in my experience, it actually much more heavy handed on the kind of cash flow side. Um, and it's interesting that common stock you know, one, it can really be this window into all of your assets, you know, all of your investments in one place with being plugged into what other investors that you respect and admire are doing. And so I'm curious, I guess what I would want to know a little bit more about is, you know, when when users come and connect all their accounts on the platform and start using common stock regularly, what does that unlock? What does it deliver for them that's moving the needle? So there's a number of different things. I think right off the bat, one thing that's interesting is, For me, I have both Robinhood and Coinbase linked, and it's interesting to see there's never been really an easy way to show your stocks and your crypto in one place. And one aha moment that we've commonly hear from users is, wow, I bought Tesla and Zoom at IPO, and I also bought Ethereum and Bitcoin early on, and my portfolio I can finally see the top five holdings by weight, and this is me speaking for myself, is actually Tesla, Zoom, Bitcoin, Ethereum. And that's actually a good mix of risk in early buy and hold and then a new emerging asset class. Being able to see 
things like Solana just absolutely taking off and overtaking a lot of the equities, being able to realize when you get a real-time alert when you buy or sell something or when there's a dividend reinvestment, how often these movements are happening and get some insight into, whoa, I didn't realize that this was such a large percent of my portfolio. Maybe I should take some of these gains or pair this back. Being able to see the entire picture, I think Mint, I used Mint when I was 20 and at the risk of aging myself, I the frustrating thing about Mint was it felt like homework. It was telling me in my early 20s, hey, David, you're spending all of your money at bars every week or restaurants. Like, I, thanks, Mint. I'm aware. I don't have money to spend on anything else, really. That's what my friends are doing. I can't really save anything. And this is what I would love for Common Stock to do as you talk about this, as we sort of segue into embedded finance, which I think is what you're alluding to, is I see a world where just like Mint, just like Venmo, there's a way to engage with your money and make it very easy and intuitive to understand whoa, I have way too much money in this high risk thing, or I have not enough exposure to crypto or to tech, or I have, I'm have i overweight blue chips, which are underperforming is a very common thing that we hear is getting a holistic picture of kind of your risk and your exposure to different asset classes. And then frankly, being able to benchmark that against other peers at your stage of your personal financial journey. When I was using Mint at 22, I was doing the same thing as all of my friends. We were poor right out of college and spending all of our money at bars. And we were kind of benchmarking against each other. Now that I'm in my mid-30s, I'm benchmarking against my peers in their mid-30s. And what's the right level of risk? I think there's a really fascinating dynamic happening right now where we see instead of spending your money at bars, young people, and this is fantastic, young people are spending their money on the stock market. And that's incredible they're taking higher risk bites because they're younger. They're in that accumulation phase. And we're seeing people who are more advanced in their career, people who are retired saying, whoa, this is too risky. You shouldn't be doing this. And I think what's really important to do to get better information is to benchmark against your peer group. And that's where common stock has come in very handy is I can't compare my portfolio to my dad's portfolio. He's in a very different stage of life. Someone who's 20 might have a different risk appetite than me. And so being able to compare with your friends, your smart friends, and see how they've performed and say, oh, wow, I'm very risky compared to most of the people in my peer group has been super valuable. That's fascinating. You know, I'm curious. It makes me think about, you know, traveling back in time. You're at Google, it's 2017, and you're making the decision to leave to go and build common stock. And I'm curious, I mean, one question I always love asking founders is, you know, if there was an aha moment or an insight that you had that made you think, I need to leave now and go and build this. Yes. There are a few different things. And I think my background has made me uniquely valuable for this journey where I kind of would say I I grew up very comfortably. Where I went to college, I would say kind of wealth adjacent, right? I got exposure to the Wall Street crowd that I beforehand didn't really know existed. And the aha moment, there were a few over the course of the five years after graduation, one of which was, as I'm trying to teach myself personal finance and economics and markets, realizing that anywhere that people talk about the stock market on the internet, will almost always descend into chaos and pump and dumps and you'll get these spammers and gurus and snake oil salesmen. And God, I really wanted a way to force people kind of to put their money where their mouth is and say, okay, if you're so good at always beating the market, link your brokerage and prove it. 
And then I'll be able to listen to you and trust you. I wanted to add this layer of trust to social networks that I think have been missing because I think there's a bit of a perverse incentive that rewards more caustic or controversial takes. I wanted to add this layer of quality. And I was at Google and I was teaching myself to code and trying to teach myself finance and markets and realizing that open forums, like I was in the early Reddit, the subreddits, early Wall Street bets, which is a very different dynamic. I saw this white hot energy and excitement around self-directed investing. And this was as Robinhood started to take off, I realized I had this aha moment that commission-free trading is going to force the hands of other brokerages and usher in a world where it is much more accessible, where prior to Robinhood, when I had just graduated, I had to set up an E-Trade account. I had to fax them my paperwork with wet signatures and physical checks, and I had to pay $12 per trade. And it took me two or three weeks to get that set up. If you could remove those barriers and you could provide access to an entirely new generation of people to the capital markets, and it was free and beautifully designed, if there was a white hot energy of excitement with that friction, imagine what it would look like without that friction. And I was started getting added to group chats and I was at Google in Gchat and our team at Google, people were bantering all day about markets. And I started realizing like, this is what people are spending their time on. They've segued out of fantasy football and into focusing that research and that time on understanding markets and businesses because it's even more healthy, right? They're learning and they're improving their financial health, which is unbelievably powerful and exciting. And for the right nerdy group of people, that's where I started building this first version of Common Stock, where I wanted people to be able to link their brokerage and kind of verify their performance and then be able to more easily share it in a way that didn't reveal their entire dollar amounts, but shared on a relative basis. Show me your skin in the game, like prove it so that I can actually trust what you're saying. And those creators, by the way, this was a really unique insight that I had when I started doing some of this research and talking to the early creators before creators were a thing. The best investors were like, I'm dying to share my holdings because I can let my game speak. And I'm getting drowned out by all the overly loud marketers. The loudest voices in the room are seldom the best investors, the people sharing the best knowledge. Sometimes the people who are the quietest, but are sharing some of the most interesting insights. I wanted to really let their performance do the talking. I think those are the three. I know I said two, it's basically, there's no way on the internet to verify or sort of add a level of quality and trust to market conversations. I realized how engaging and fun it was to learn about this stuff with my friends. And there were a class of people who were looking to share their portfolio and their knowledge in a healthy and cooperative way. And I wanted to enable that. Those are really interesting points, especially that last one about, you know, how creators um, have kind of emerged in the investing community. And something I've always admired about being a part of the investing community is whether it's talked about explicitly or not, there's a lot of reciprocity built into it. I mean, the best investors super openly publish their annual letters or annual reports. You know, Warren Buffett obviously comes to mind, but there are many, many, many others. You know, Chamath at Social Capital is another example. And there's an extre- extremely long list of investors, you 
you know, whose annual reports I read. And it covers everything from endowments to people managing hedge funds. But just this idea that, you know, they share those in part, obviously, for their investors. But I think investors in general love sharing those ideas. And they, and they love seeing what other people are thinking, what they're noticing, what they're investing in, what they're excited about that they're seeing. And I think it, you know, as we think about this generational shift, I think that's really wonderful how much interaction and communication is kind of built into the platform that you're building. Because in the household I grew up in, you know, we didn't talk about money and we definitely didn't really talk about investing. And it's interesting that it's becoming a social thing. And, you know, I think part of that is people are now getting to invest in their interests. And so it's much more personal where it didn't used to feel personal at all. But I think another piece is it feels like it's moving from a single player game to a multiplayer game, which is a huge fundamental shift. And so I'm curious, you know, do you have any interesting perspectives um, that have bubbled up for you around that generational shift and what that means? Oh, man, this is where I could really go off the rails <laughs> and you're poking the bear. There's just so much that I get excited about here. Like one thing you alluded to that is I hear this constantly from the more established, even hedge fund investors and the more experienced Wall Street people is why would you ever want to share your trades? Like, why would you ever talk about money like this? Venmo seemed crazy. Like, why would you ever share that you're sending money to someone? Why would you ever share your portfolio, even by percentage? And there's been this fascinating shift from investing in markets as a zero sum game, where if I buy something, I don't want to share it. That's like my secret sauce of information to a non-zero-sum game where it is multiplayer, it's collaborative, and you're seeing even hedge funds and mutual funds, Kathy Wood and Shamath are probably two of the pioneers here where they're realizing, hey, it's actually more powerful if I be transparent about my thinking and what I'm doing. And I think that's the way that markets are trending and will go is it's not about hiding what you're doing and being secretive. And that's the old school thought. And you're seeing this, especially with NFTs and crypto, it's more about community and building consensus and building a following for the people that love their Peloton bike or love this NFT or love this crypto token. Or Elon has done better than almost any other CEO at building a community and an excitement around his product and his company. And that is Someone had a great tweet that vibes are the new fundamentals. And there's some truth to that. And when you compare that with my parents did not obviously grow up with social media. If you are talking to this with a friend this weekend, if you are 25 or 30, your entire life is almost transparent. You grew up on Instagram and Twitter and now TikTok and all these newfangled things that you're sharing very openly what your life is like. And money is no different where... It's a totally new approach, which I would argue is way healthier of, hey, here's what I'm thinking about savings versus investing versus here's my risk appetite. And people are very open about it. It almost brings people closer together, I think, to be able to share the Brene Brown vulnerability of this is me. This is my financial state. It's not good or bad. This is just who I am. I would love to improve. And there's that openness of I think this is so fascinating amongst younger people is the willingness to say, I am not perfect in my investing journey. I'm just getting started or I'm trying to learn. Here's where I currently am. Help me improve. And that hunger to improve is something that in my parents' generation was non-existent. You were very buttoned up and you would never share or talk about those things externally. And so I think that's insanely healthy. And I think the other layer of this is 
the current generation is growing up in a very different economic situation than the baby boomer crowd. My parents, who I love very much, but there's a totally different, you know, to buy a house, even myself, right? I am coming to you from my rental in San Francisco, realizing it's still for me very hard to imagine buying a house. And if you're young, my parents were able to have a steady job and buy a house at 25 or 30. But if you're 25 or 30 now, the price of that same home is two or three times as expensive, if not more. And so you need to take riskier bets to accumulate wealth versus the approach that worked for our parents' generation. And so it's the, a combination of a completely different economic state for young people, the psychological world that they grew up in where transparency is the norm, not the exception, and the ability of, for the first time ever, this what I call information liquidity, where it's more powerful in markets to share your thoughts and your thinking and your positions because you can build some more consensus and build momentum around that. So I think those are three interesting dynamics that I've been tracking that all have created this perfect storm of new market participation and new styles. You did a great job mapping that out. And one thing you touched on, I think is really interesting, is that it feels like generationally investing has moved from being this prescriptive thing where you went to some professional, they told you what to do, and then you literally just gave them your money and then they did that. They did that with your money. Into, uh, it feels like the latest generation is really embracing this permissionless investing where it's much more about taking their own ideas, the ideas from their friends, the ideas from their social network, the brands and companies that appeal to them and investing there. Do you have any interesting perspectives on that? Oh man, again, stirring the pot. (laughs) This is like sort of my super hot take here. I want to give a little bit of context in the background for capital markets in general, where Wall Street and capital markets as we know it, from after the depression in 1929 to 1970, roughly, markets were very boring. It was just like accounting, banks and speculative investing were totally separate. And there were all these rules and regulations. In the 1970s, there were two key things that happened. We deregulated capital markets and allowed for a lot more speculation, which is good. And we also, Milton Friedman created the Friedman Doctrine of businesses no longer exist for the sake of the community. They exist for the sake of the stockholder or the corporation. It's the stockholder versus the stakeholder. And that gave companies like Enron the permission to take very wildly risky bets they could justify because it would make stockholders more money, even if it hurt the community. And the deregulation allowed for the financialization of our economy that had never existed before. And so for the first time from 1970 to 2010-ish, or even 2020, over these 50 years, prior to that, every big market move was primarily a geopolitical event. And since then, every big market correction has been a finance-driven or a market, like a, a Wall Street-driven event. And you can look at stagflation, you can look at the housing bubble, you can look at the tech bubble, and increasing the amounts of leverage and the riskiness of those bets had created this industry of, there's a great chart that I'll share, where you can watch the pay like go steeply parabolic from 1970 where it used to be full parity with the rest of the economy. And then Wall Street's pay became like 10x more than the regular economy. And for the first time ever recently, what we, and by the way, over the past 20 years, as retail investing became a thing, there is this 
in my opinion, nefarious narrative that is very paternalistic, as you said, which is markets are way too risky for the regular person to do. It's too complicated. You don't really get it. Give me your money. We will manage it for you. And yeah, sure, we'll take a little bit off the top. What I think is the most fascinating of this paternalistic permission, as you said, the permission to invest thing is when you step back and realize, hang on. So what you're asking is for us to concentrate all of our money into your account so that you get to make more money off of it. And it creates this kind of rampant inequality that's been running for the past 50 years. But by the way, you keep screwing it up too, As a, and, and this is a gross generalization, but as a whole, institutional investors are the ones that get over-levered or overly concentrated their risk and cause these crashes. Distributed retail investing has never caused any sort of massive market correction or recession because that risk is distributed healthily amongst millions of people. And so what finally has happened over the past few years is in a very large way, people realizing, hang on, for the first time ever, I can take control of my own finances. And also I have an informational advantage because I have boots on the ground and I know what products my friends are using. I know what products I myself am using and I want to invest in the things that I believe in. And that is almost more valuable than what the CNBC or Bloomberg or the fund manager tells me I'm supposed to invest in or how I'm supposed to invest. And it's evolving very rapidly into crypto and NFTs. And so I think that we're seeing this kind of brand new approach where the vast majority of people have realized, wait, I don't need permission to do this. The pernicious narrative of a pat on the head, this is too risky for you. Regular people shouldn't be allowed to do this has been turned on its head and realized from the data we see on common stock, self-directed investors actually outperformed the hedge funds over the past few years. And who's to say whether that trend sticks, but I think it will. I think we've seen a totally foundational change in you know the way that markets operate because there's been this influx of new capital where self-directed investors have gone from under 5% to over 30% of the market. And that is unbelievably healthy. Instead of concentrating in the entire market by volume in a few institutions, it's now being distributed back to the vast majority of people all over the country and world who get more direct access and don't have to pay a fee for somebody who is, at the end of the day, just going to put them into an ETF that reverts their performance right back to the mean. And by the way, this opens the can of worms that I also believe is that I'm not saying that you should never let professionals handle your money. I'm just saying there is a difference between not giving permission to regular people to invest versus acknowledging it's healthy to have some of your money in a self-directed brokerage, A, because we need people to get exposure to how businesses and markets work. My very hot take in all of this is the value of markets is much less the dollar size of your portfolio, but the knowledge that you gain over the years that compounds. And so starting at 20 and understanding inflation, the fact that there are teenagers on TikTok talking about Jerome Powell and the Fed is mind boggling, where usually that conversation wouldn't happen until you're well into your 30s or 40s. And so if that knowledge compounds for those that generation of people, I think for the first time, people have realized they don't need permission to 
be engaged with that type of knowledge and to make moves based on it. So I can keep going forever on this. And I know I'm probably rambling. It's just, it's so exciting for me to see en masse, to see people realize the traditional gatekeepers of access to this upside have been bumped out of the way and that there's still a very important, healthy place for institutions and capital markets, but it's very healthy for regular self-directed investors to make up a very large portion of capital markets. That's the way it has been prior to 1970. And the pendulum is swinging back to that right now, which the people who craft the narrative because they run these funds and are incentivized to manage that money and get those fees are going to continue saying, this is too risky. This is all examples of things that are too dangerous. But the data that we see is actually counter to that, which is regular self-directed people are making intelligent decisions with their money. They're not like putting their entire net worth into the riskiest asset all the same time. That's not an actual thing that's happening. They might buy one or two shares of GameStop to participate in a Six Sigma event, but they're going into that eyes wide open knowing, I want to have a little bit of exposure to this very high risk thing. It might be a fraction of a percent of my portfolio, but the upside of that, just like classic portfolio theory, the upside of that is asymmetric. And I have the vast majority in professionally managed 401ks or passively managed ETFs or indexes. And it's actually a very thoughtful, intelligent approach that we're seeing at least. And I think it's really exciting to see that happening. One thing you alluded to that I think would be really interesting to explore a little bit more is just this idea that, you know, over the last five years, but I feel like it's really, for me, at least from my perspective, been compressed in the last two to three years, we've seen a massive explosion of platforms. And it's everything from, you know, new brokerage models, whether that's Robinhood or public. Um, but you've also seen crypto exchanges and platforms take off like Coinbase and CoinList. You know, I've seen things like Fundrise where you can buy fractional ownership in real estate. You know, I've seen the same thing in the collectible market, whether you're looking at Rally. We did an interview recently with one of the co-founders of Rally that I thought was fascinating. It's just a fascinating ex- uh, space that's growing really, really quickly. And then you're also seeing new alternative things, whether that's DeFi, whether that's NFTs that are starting to take off. And so I'd be curious to, I guess, understand a little bit of of the amount of interest you've seen both in alternative investments as well as specifically things like, say, NFTs? We're seeing incredible interest. And I think this is the thing that I get most excited. The thing that I get most excited about that we've barely scratched the surface on is it feels like we're moving in this direction where almost everything could be an investable asset from art to, as you said, wine, to shoes, to JPEGs of NFTs, to crypto, Web 3.0, traditional stocks, options. It's amazing. I would imagine, I was not alive in 1970, but I would imagine if someone said, we're going to create these like derivatives, which are a totally new asset class. I'm sure at the time, and I know at the time, I was like, this is too speculative. This is too risky. What is, this is a newfangled thing. It's not an investment. Like this isn't legit. You can't do this. And I'm sure you would look at the same now where Instead of those new asset classes only being available to a small few on Wall Street or financial firms or country clubs, now Rally and Otis are creating very broadly available, I can buy Jordan's shoes and I can invest in a Lamborghini. And I think we are seeing on Common Stock, and it's honestly the challenge for us is to keep up with all of these asset classes. This is why I think the broker agnostic approach is so critical, is we can add 
NFTs, we can add tokens, we can add any different asset class eventually through the use of an API as everything becomes embedded and everything becomes investable. We are no longer beholden just to traditional equities. And that's where I get very excited when I think of my own approach to markets and investing is I had a great conversation with one of the greatest investors of all time. We worked at a VC fund and before that worked at a hedge fund, one of the top tier VC funds. And he was talking about how we have this leaderboard on common stock that shows the top performing investors over a certain time period. And again, the goal for common stock is to amplify the people who actually outperform the market. And of course, we want that to be on a risk adjusted basis. But he looked at this leaderboard and he was pushing back. He was like, well, it's not really fair because a lot of the leaderboard are people who have been invested in tech stocks or crypto or different asset classes that aren't necessarily just equities. And I had to like take a pause, like, well, how do you define the best investor? If the people who have been buying and selling, who were able to predict the future of Web 3.0 and were buying Ethereum and Bitcoin and Solana and the people who were early investors in art or in wine, what makes them any different than you buying equities? Why do you get to decide what counts as investing, what counts as not investing? And so that's where we're seeing this new world, this new approach of seeking out the opportunities and the upside that exist outside of traditional realms. And it's been interesting to watch institutions kind of follow retail because retail are the first to discover NFTs. And then you've got institutions like Visa going in and buying NFTs, playing the follower, not the leader. And I just think that's going to continue to expand as we get more broad access to the ability to make everything kind of something that you can invest in. That's where common stock and I think other layers that are, that's where I think embedded finance is the future, where ultimately the custodian, the people that manage the actual asset underneath will become less important. And it's the way that you interact, like OpenSea is a great example, this fascinating layer on top of all of the NFT world. That's where I think it gets interesting. One thing I am super interested to ask you would be, I guess, your vision of what common stock looks like, say, five to 10 years out. Because I think, you know, we're starting to see these alternative platforms emerge. We're starting to see now with common stock kind of this new layer being built on top of it that unlocks, I think, some really interesting things. So, you know, I'm curious, I guess, from your perspective, what does common stock look like in five to 10 years? What are people connecting to the platform? What sorts of investments does the average user on your platform have? What does that picture look like to you? Yeah. So in five to 10 years, my vision would be for common stock specifically, but I think broadly, the place that you manage your underlying assets, whether it's your dollars, your crypto, your NFTs, that will be one place. And there's a separate place that you engage with it. I think of Venmo. I barely go to my Wells Fargo account anymore. I use Venmo to send and receive money to my friends. The future to me is this layer that sits on top of every financial institution. And I think of this group of 20 to 35-year-olds really upping the ceiling to try to include myself <laughs> in that generation. When you think of them like going to buy a house in their mid-30s, they have this new portfolio that includes art, wine, tokens, sneakers, stocks, options. They've invested in their friend's rolling VC fund on AngelList. Like there's just this new world of diversification that has never existed before. 
and it's across all of these fragmented brokerages and custodians, there has to be one place that surfaces all of that and aggregates all of that. And that's how you can engage with it and interact with it. Otherwise, I think back to the early days of credit cards, or at least my own experience, where I've got like 10 different credit cards and different logins. And that's why Mint was valuable of different bank accounts and different funds. And I don't even know where it all lives. Like, how do I track all of it? And so I think it's going to be really exciting to see a new generation take a completely new approach to improving their financial health by getting exposure to high-risk things like an NFT, right? I have a very close friend I spent this weekend with. My buddy, Zach, basically is putting together almost an ETF for NFTs, if that sounds like, how could you put together a way you could create a syndicate to buy NFTs is a new thing that's happening. And we can now pool our money and we can go in on wine or we can go in on, oh my gosh, this GIF is going to go crazy. This crypto punk is going to go wild. So there's just these completely new, there's access to totally new investment vehicles and there needs to be a way to engage with them and share information and knowledge. That's the thing that I think is lagging behind really to hopefully land this plane is it's great to see Reddit massively increase exposure to capital markets. We badly need, you know, if if brokerages have democratized access to finance, I want Common Stock to democratize access to the knowledge of these financial instruments, quality knowledge. And I know democratizing is overused, but even with NFTs, with all these new asset classes, we urgently need the knowledge and the insight to keep pace. And that's where I think this meta layer, again, like overused buzzword alert metaverse of knowledge and insights that sits on top of every asset class will be where users spend all of their time. I think that's a fascinating view of the world. And, you know, I was so excited for this conversation exactly for what we've been talking about, because I've seen this explosion in investable asset classes. We've seen this movement for people to take their money and invest it in their values and invest it in what matters to them. And I think from my perspective, I just continue to see just fascinating, like bizarre and interesting niche little things. Like recently I was looking at a private ETF, so it's not publicly traded, but you'd be able to invest in it privately that, you know, does something really interesting to me, which is it helps farmers be able to purchase organic land because in the US, we still have a very small percentage of total acreage, total farm acreage that's dedicated to organic farming. And it's really difficult to make that change. It's really capital intensive to make that change. And so here's an ETF that's kind of focused on that opportunity. And I think that's one narrow example, but I'm seeing that just all over the place. And so it's fascinating when you zoom out because, you know, I just feel like there's an incredible amount of activity happening in the larger ecosystem. And in my mind, it really points to what you're doing. You know, I see feels like the last wave of innovation that we saw was kind of this massive launch of platforms that are focused on different verticals, that are focused on different interests. And to me, it feels like the next wave is that now consolidating back and people being able to have a central platform where they can go, where they can see everything that they own in one place. And they can kind of wrap their heads around that, follow people that are interesting to them. And it just feels like a really critical, important piece of infrastructure that's missing today. And it's interesting that what you're building is right at the intersection of that. I think this actually ties back to this non-zero-sum aspect of markets right now, where what we've seen a ton of on Common Stock is what I call sort of economic activism, where when Nike backs Kaepernick, the fundamentals of their business haven't changed, but we see a rush of new young investors buying Nike stock, just saying, hey, I agree with you. I love this. 
I'm in. I want to support you as a company for doing the right thing. Same thing with GoDaddy. When GoDaddy banned white supremacy websites, we saw a flood of young investors buy GoDaddy stock. And that's it's amazing to watch. You can draw these parallels to Hertz and Kodak, to GameStop, to crypto, where people are investing in the projects like loot. They're investing in the things that they just believe in and want to exist. And they're not going to invest in the things like vapes are uncool and not healthy anymore. And so it's amazing this economic activism where large groups of people are voting with their wallet, ESG, portfolios, climate change, the things they believe in. It's remarkable. It's really powerful. It's exciting. So very excited to see where that moves. Yeah, you and me both. And this has been a fascinating conversation. I mean, we've zoomed way, way out. We've gotten really into the weeds on what you're building. We've talked about some of the generational shifts that are happening, the explosion in platforms. So I think the question I would ask to kind of help close out the interview is, you know, you've been building now for something like five years. And I know from any entrepreneur, I mean, every year, really every quarter, it feels like a year's worth of kind of developments and frustrations and wins and learnings kind of all happen in a very short period of time. But, but for you, you've been at this, you know, now an extended period of time and you're working on something interesting that's really at this inflection point. And so I'd be curious if you could share a lesson that you've learned that you would pass on to an entrepreneur listening to this podcast. Oh boy, how much time do we have? (laughs) Take as much time as you want. It has been almost five years now. Honestly, it was probably a little bit early, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I was talking this weekend about just, it is such an unbelievably, I know this is overly cliche, it's such a hard journey and you've gone through this yourself. The learning curve is so obscenely steep and it feels like For me, one of the things that I've learned, the hardest part of building a company or a startup or building really anything from scratch, I argue is 95% psychological. It is, you're going to have constant challenges and problems that you don't even really know are challenges. It's not about designing or writing the right code. Those are actually very straightforward challenges. It is about managing your own psychology over years and the sheer amount of work and the amount that you have to learn on the fly, the mistakes that you're going to make on a regular basis, and a mix of both the humble approach of, I have so much to learn in parallel and at the same time somehow with, I believe so strongly in this idea and this direction and this future that I'm going to continue to basically just run my head through walls And you're going to feel the swings of great elation and absolute despair. And you have to kind of modulate and find a middle ground of, at the end of the day, something that feels like it's going to kill the company probably won't. Something that feels like you've made it, you probably haven't. And just continue to move the ball forward and learn. And for me, this is not hustle porn, but I think it's very trendy to start a company, but you have to just absolutely unequivocally love what you're doing and you have to commit to, even if this is a colossal failure and we don't make any money, it goes bankrupt, will this have been rewarding and valuable? What is your actual goal? For me, the classic Jeff Bezos minimizing regret approach, taking a shot on goal to try to improve people's financial health, I'll never regret taking that shot. I'll always regret the action not taken and the amount that I've learned, the impact that we've already had on people's lives. For me, my ultimate scoreboard is just, can I have as much impact as possible on as many people as possible? 
and it is hyper difficult and it is absurdly challenging, but it's also wildly rewarding when someone comes to you as they have on common stock and said, Hey, you made me a millionaire because I saw this investment memo and I learned about an asset and I bought it and it went up 10 X. And like, that's, it sounds crazy, but that is worth its weight in gold to me is just, there's nothing like improving other people's financial health or helping other people make money to me is just like, that's what it's all about. And you have to take those small wins to get through all of the challenges of as the team grows. Now you've got 40 people looking to you with different questions and different ideas of how to improve. And there's always like a new challenge to overcome. And that's just part of the ride. And you have to take this out-of-body experience and say, oh, this is the part where you hyperscale the company and everything feels chaotic. And then you keep the train on the rails and get it back online and get everyone rowing in the same direction. And then you come out the other side and impact more people and it's worth it. So I don't know, that's a little bit rambling, but that's just the psychological challenge and the ability to manage that and continue moving one foot in front of the other in the right direction you'll end up in the right place usually. That was incredible. And I'm so glad you brought up the psychological piece because you know, I know from talking with a lot of entrepreneurs, I know from my own experiences, especially turning around a company for a couple of years, that the psychological side, which is really linked to the emotional side, it can just be a brutal experience. And I actually saw a quote recently from Leo um, from Sousa Ventures that had a tweet a while ago saying something like, you know, that he thought what was going to be helpful early on was helping founders with tactical things. And what he really learned was that the biggest piece of the puzzle was much more psychological and and emotional. And so I I love that you brought that up. Just to close out the conversation, you know, where can people find Common Stock online? Where can they go to sign up? Commonstock.com. We've got a web app and a iOS app in the app store. We're at join Common Stock on Twitter. And you can find me at David McDonut on Twitter. There's a bunch of U's and GH's. It's confusing. I need to clean that up. But thank you so much for having me. You know how much I love brainstorming about this stuff. So, Well, thank you so much for the time, David. This has been one of my favorite conversations in a really long time. And I mean, I deeply love what you're building and I'm excited to see how it evolves over the next few years. So thank you so much for the time. For links to everything Dave and I discussed, as well as our favorite quotes and clips from the episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 44. For more from David, listen to the short bonus episode that follows this one, where I dive into everything from David's habits and routines to the tools he loves, his favorite books, and so much more, all in less than 20 minutes. And if you enjoyed this episode, visit outlieracademy.com to explore more incredible interviews with guests like Scott Belsky, Kevin Kelly, and the founders of Titan, Rally, Primal Kitchen, and so many other companies. There you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Outlier Debrief, where every Friday we share our highlights from the latest episode, as well as a few of our favorite articles, headlines, and moments from that week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.